welcome to the Families Voices podcast. Our podcast today is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The Family Voices podcast is a series of conversations with families of young children with a developmental delay or disability. We aim to build parents' knowledge, skills and confidence in navigating early childhood services and supports. The podcast is also an opportunity for families to share their stories. This podcast series is brought to you by Early Childhood Intervention Australia, VicTAS. We're a membership-based organisation that's proudly worked alongside families, practitioners and other organisations that provide supports for young children with disability or developmental delay and their families for over 35 years. To learn more about the podcast and our organisation, please visit ekiavic.org.au. Hello there, Kerry Bull here. I'm so pleased to be here today with Debbie. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Kerry. Good to meet you, and uh, I'm so keen to hear your story and, and thought maybe, Debbie, you could start us off by telling us a bit about why you wanted to share your story on our podcast. That's a, that's a great question, Kerry, and, and thank you for having me on. Um, I really wanted to share my story for one simple reason. I really think that stories and life experiences and sharing your successes and your barriers is all about paying it forward. So there might be even just one person listening today that that gets something out of this story um, and, and that's why I do it. It's about paying forward all the great things and all the, the very important people in my life and, and the help that they've given me to get where I am today. Um, I can never really pay it back, but I guess I, maybe I can pay it forward. Yeah, I like that expression, paying forward. That's a, a good way to think about it. And and Debbie, certainly you've kind of encapsulated what Family Podcast is all about, is that it is about people sharing stories um, in the hope or expectation that other people will hear something and it will be helpful for them, but of course also helpful for the person who's telling their story. Absolutely. It's, it's a lovely outlet to have and it's a, it's a very um, welcoming and safe space to be in and I'm very grateful. So thank you. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's great. And I'm, I'm glad you're feeling it's a safe space. What is it about your story, Debbie? Can you tell us a bit about your, your background, your story? Absolutely. Uh, so my story starts um, in the mid or early 80s. Um, I was born at 24 weeks, um, which is obviously quite early back in those days. My parents were living in uh, Wagga Wagga at the time. My dad was in the RAF. And over Christmas in 1984, uh, my family all came down with uh, vomiting, actually, over Christmas. And it went through the whole family. And it ended up, uh, my mum got it on the 30th of December. And I was born then on the 31st of December, very early and very unexpected. Um, because of that, I um, had a stroke, which affects the whole right side of my body. So I've got cerebral palsy, right side hemiplegia. And the best way that I describe that is that I just use my left side for everything 
and my right side is just for decoration. Um, so my story is really about, I guess, being disabled and, and growing up in that time period and, and this time period now and, and I guess the barriers and successes that I've um, come across um, and also, I guess, the, the experiences that I've had and, and where I want to go as well. Yeah, well, I'm keen to hear about the where you want to go. <laughs> um, I'm guessing that back in the 80s that expectations about the capacity of people with a disability to contribute and be part of um, community and family and society were very different then. Can you talk with us a bit about that, about, about whether that was the case and what, what people's expectations were? Absolutely. Uh, so for my parents, um, they had three other children. They had my sister who was 10 at the time, my brother who was eight, and my other sister who was six. Um, and they had no um, concept of having a child with a disability. Um, obviously, the internet wasn't around, so they couldn't research um, any information about it. And it was quite a shock to the family because I was born so early. They didn't have things ready. They hadn't, you know, quite got their mind around it. And really all they had to go off of was um, the, the medical opinions of the doctors at the time. And uh, what my parents were told was that I would never be able to walk or talk um, that my life trajectory was very likely going to be a uh, special school. Um, probably I could live at the family home for a few years, but then they'd want to transfer me into a group home and, and get me settled. And, you know, if I was lucky enough later on in life, maybe I could get a place at a, a day program or, or a sheltered workshop. And that was really um, the expectations that um, they gave to my parents. Um, and that's what my parents had to run with. They didn't have any other kind of form of, of getting information or, or a podcast to listen to. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and what about their expectations then, Debbie, the expectations of your mum and dad and how they were managing that, how, particularly with three, three other older children? Exactly. Uh, so for the first year of my life, I lived in, uh, in a Sydney hospital where they had all the equipment to look after me and my family was based back in Wagga. So every spare chance that they got, they were trying to get to Sydney to visit with me and, and learn more about what my disability was and, and how to um, possibly accommodate it. But one thing that they always held strong to was this notion that because they had these other three children, they had this model of what life should be like and they just instilled in me from a really young age that I would do what they were doing. I just might need to find a different way to do it. So in my household, I can never, ever remember a time of anyone saying to me, I can't do something. It was always, well, you can't do it that way, but find another way to do it. And I think that that has just stayed with me throughout my life. Mm. So it sounds like even though the prevailing thoughts of the time, the medical profession and, and others about the expectations and the trajectory of your life was somewhat limited, uh, your family had very different expectations. They had high expectations of you. 
really high expectations. And I think that there was that real push and pull between the expectations that they had versus that of the medical community. And um, it was almost a push and pull between not setting me up to fail versus what was really attainable for me. But because they held strong to that, I never knew anything different. I never knew that you know, I can't do something. I always just approached it with that different mindset because that's what I grew up in. That's the household I grew up in. Um, That's how my brothers and sisters, um, I guess, interacted with me. Um, Yeah, I was never kind of made to feel anything different. Yeah, yeah, you were one of the gang of a family with four kids and the, and the ruffle and tumble that all that brings. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I like the way you talk about the push and pull and I, I want to hear more from you about that because I'm interested in how your parents managed that and managed that, that pushing and pulling of, of uh, expectations. But I'm, I'm wondering firstly is about other people's expectations. For example, teachers, when you started going to school, what, what was your early experiences with school in the 80s? Absolutely. Uh, so um, I was enrolled in a, in a special school, uh, but at the time it was actually about an hour away from where we were living. Um, and having the older children in the family and only having the, the one vehicle, I would have to catch um, a special school bus to, to get there every day. And uh, my mum recalls, you know, having a look at the bus and seeing it and seeing the children on it. And back in the 80s, they used to kind of strap us in, even if we didn't have any um, issues with um, sitting upright, we still got strapped in with, the, with all the body straps. And she just couldn't do it. She could not put me on that bus. She she said, no, that's that's not you. That's not it for you. Um, and so she went around to all of our local primary schools and really banged the drum of, can she just come and be part of the classroom? Can You know, could she sit up the back? She's toilet trained. She's, you know, very quiet. Um, but can she just... Can she just be in a in a normal classroom? You know, I don't know how long you'll have her for, but could she just try for grade one? And you know, look, she didn't have much luck around the local traps, but um, then she did find one teacher. It was a a teacher that had just come out of um, teachers training, so a very new teacher, new to the area. Um, she had a very different lifestyle to to that that was the norm at the time. And this teacher said to my mum okay, yes, look, we'll take her on. Um, She can come and be part of the grade one class. Um, But just so you know, the only thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to focus in on teaching her how to read so that later on in life, she'll never be lonely because she'll always be able to read a book and um, she'll have that comfort. Um, And really, that's what happened. She took me on into that grade one class um, and she taught me how to read and look, reading to this day has been, I guess, the skill that's got me to where I am. It's it's something that I love as as something as as a passion, but I love also in in the in my work as well. So I'm incredibly grateful to that teacher that she took me on and she gave me that opportunity. Because from that, I was able to show them that hey, not only could I learn to read, but I could, you know, do other stuff as well. And so they let me stay in that mainstream school. 
And, you know, I, I'm just so thankful for it because I often think back and I think, you know, if I had just gone through the schooling of, of, of the special school route, would I have been able to find these opportunities and, and find these areas that um, afforded me um, so much? I don't know. Yeah, the trajectory may have been quite different for you. Mm. You say that you're grateful for that teacher and and uh, I understand that sentiment, but, boy, do we, uh, do we need to be thinking about inclusion in a different way. This isn't about being grateful for the opportunity to be included in uh, the local school and community and so on. Yeah. I, I hope that teacher's listening to this podcast, Debbie, and, and here's, here's what a difference she made. Yes, wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> wouldn't that be? And you say that um, she had... She, was, she came from a quite different lifestyle. It, it seems actually she had quite different attitudes about disability and you in particular and about your potential and different expectations for, for you. Absolutely. So the, the expectations weren't um, those low expectations that all the other schools or all the other teachers that were approached had. Um, she saw something that maybe my mum and my dad saw as well yeah. and and she decided to give it a go, um, not knowing where it would lead, but just just gave it a go. Yeah. And and it, it's led to you going on to um, further education and studies and you, you work in the disability sector now. I do, I do. So, yes, I went through um, schooling, I went to university and, and my love of reading led me to the law. Um, so I'm a lawyer professionally um, and I worked in the, the legal sector for a long time um, and then I had time off to have my, um, my kids and it was at that time that I really thought about, okay, when I'm going back to work, what do I really want to do? Do I want to go back to this or, or what do I want to do? And I... I had a coffee, I remember at the time of, of having this inner decision within myself, I had a coffee with a, a local um, disability advocate um, just out of, it was circumstance happening that we, we met each other um, in a shopping centre. And he said to me, what are you going back to law for? Why aren't you doing disability? And I said to him, what, what on earth would I do in disability? Like, well, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about disability. And he looked at me like I had two heads. Looked at me like, what, you have a disability. What do you mean? You, and I went, yeah, but that's, I know me. I know my disability, but I don't know. I don't, I don't have any qualifications in this. Um, and he really pushed me. He said, you've got a lot to give back in the sector. I think you should look at it. Um, and so I did, I, I started working then at the NDIS and then at the Disability Royal Commission and now in the space of helping younger people living in aged care find more age-appropriate housing solutions. And honestly, I wake up every day excited to do my work. Um, it's There's something rejuvenating about finding your place and being able to use something that you always thought was a negative or a deficit in a positive way. It's, it's life affirming and yeah, it's just, it's amazing. Mm. 
I share your joy. I've worked in the disability sector for decades and I also wake up each day very happy that I'm working in this field. And I've got to say, one of the best parts of my weeks is uh, listening to people's experiences and recording the Family Voices podcast. So, uh, yeah, there's there's much to learn and much to contribute, isn't there? You mentioned... um, your boys, you said you were on maternity leave at that time. Can I ask a bit about that now as a mother of, of three boys? How has your experience influence how you raise your family and, and your children's attitudes towards disability? That's a great question. Um, look, before I had my kids, I'd kind of figured out a way around my disability in a way, like I'd figured out how to do things or how to not do things so that I could be a lot more independent or I'd avoid certain things that I knew I had a real issue with. So I I kind of felt like I had my disability down to a fine art, if that makes any sense. Then when I had my first boy, who's um, now eight, um, it just brought me to my knees in the fact that I hadn't really thought this through and having a baby and having to do everything means you can't cut the corners that maybe you used to in your own way of doing things. Um, And it was really um, a pivotal moment for me where I had to get a lot of help just to even learn how to hold him, how to change a nappy one-handed, you know, how to do all those things. Um, And it, you know, it really kind of brought me to my knees of, Debbie, you have a disability. Like, not that I had forgotten it by any means, but, yeah, it it really brought it home again that, um, you know, you're in a caring role now and there's a lot of things that you won't be able to do. Mm. So you'd kind of mastered your independence and your life and so on and then you were needing to manage this new little person who uh, was relying on you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, at the time, I remember thinking, you know, who could I even reach out to talk to about this? Like, is it, there has to be other people that have done it. Who can, who can tell me what the best one-handed stroller would be that I can do up or undo or chuck in the car or, you know, all these things. Um, and it was just a whole new world to try to navigate. Yeah. Um, but obviously I managed to, to navigate it okay because I, I lined up the next year to have my second son. Um, and then I've got my third son now as well. So I was trying for that girl. I never quite got there. Three boys. Um, Three boys is good, Debbie. Three boys is good. (laughs) And what about now they're older? What's your sense of their attitudes about disability? Do um, Do you think your life experience has had an impact on their, their attitudes? Absolutely. So I've never ever kind of sat down or like, talked about it with them like in a in a formal sense or anything like that but um it's funny what they pick up so they see me you know walking around the house doing things like I open things with my teeth and one of my hands and things and I notice I see them doing it now and I have to say to them hey use your hands like and but I know that they're just copying me so they, they copy little things that I haven't even quite been aware of um but they just think it's normal. They think it's normal having support workers in to help mum. They think it's normal that dad does all the cooking and, and does all the cutting up and, and helps us all get dressed. Um, so it would be interesting to watch them as they grow up if, if it changes kind of 
how they view a normal mainstream family life. But in terms of how they view me, so I was always quite worried that, you know, that I would be embarrassing for them, like like my disability would be, you know, embarrassing when they have friends over or, or, or whatever. And um, something happened recently. We had um, one of my older boys' um, friends over for a swim and and I'm, you know, getting the some of the swimming togs ready and the towels and whatnot. And um, I heard them out on the deck and the friend was saying to my oldest one, he was saying, well, he's whispering it, but I heard him, he goes, hey, what's, what's wrong with your mum? And I remember I was in the, like the kitchen getting the stuff ready and, and I kind of felt that awful kind of knot in your stomach where you just go, oh, mm. oh that question, I never liked it. Um, and my son just didn't miss a beat. He just went, nothing's wrong with us. She just got a disability. And they just kept doing what they were doing. And like, I, I was standing in the kitchen and I could have cried. Like, I was just like, oh, he doesn't think there's anything weird about me. I'm still mum and and it's just me and I don't need to be embarrassed. I don't need to feel weird because he doesn't. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, it just made me feel really, really good. Yeah. Makes me feel good hearing the story. Um, yeah. yeah, this is what it's all about, isn't it? And um, I, I'm interested that in that in terms of what you think about inclusion um, and how that impacts. You know, it's clearly impacted in terms of your inclusive school life. What, what's your feelings now about people's inclusion? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so like, like I was saying, in my childhood, I was always, you know, having to do what my brothers and sisters did. So I was made to play netball. I used to catch the ball with my face because I can't catch a ball, um, but I had to turn up every week. Um, I had to play musical instruments, even though I can't do it. So my mum made me play the cello. It didn't make any noise. Like, you know, so I was just had to do things. And I guess now my view is of inclusion, you know, if you see it more often and it's just part of life, you don't, there's not as much questioning of who is that? What's wrong with them? Why don't they fit in? It's just, it just is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's the best way to go about it. It's just, yeah. it's just, that's how it is. You, you know, yeah. we're all in, we're all in, in this together, doing our best to get on with uh, life and, and lead a, Need a good and full one, yeah. That's right. We're all we're all people, and we've all got stories, and we're all a little bit different to each other. Um, yeah. Thankfully, thankfully we are. <laughs> yes. Otherwise, it'd be a bit boring, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would. It would indeed. Debbie, can we go back to the push and pull you were talking about with um, your parents? Because I I want to dig into what it was about your mum that made her such a strong advocate for you? You talked about her knocking on school doors, trying to get you a a place in the local school. What was it about your mum? Yes. um, Look, the best way I can describe my mum, and I mean this in the the most lovely sense of of these next words, is it's like if Judge Judy and Nancy Pelosi had a baby together, that would be my mum. She can be terrifyingly loving in her channeling of her beliefs in right versus wrong. And it's like a red rag to a bull. Even today, if you say that she can't do something or if she sees something that she perceives as a 
injustice of some sort. Um, so she knew nothing about disability until I was born and um, she just wasn't having it that these doctors were saying that I wasn't going to be able to walk and talk. Of course she is. We're going to keep practicing. She's going to go to therapy. And yes, she can do anything that she puts her mind to. So she's an incredibly strong woman. Um, and she just does not take no for an answer, um, even today. And she doesn't let you feel sorry about yourself. She has a rule where if something goes wrong or something happens to you, you have one day of feeling bad for yourself, then get over it and move on. Like she's just, she would not let anyone wallow in self-pity. She's just not there for it. Um, so she was incredibly strong. Um, my grandparents were incredibly strong and helped my mum and dad with the older kids at the time because, you know, obviously going to doctor's appointments and therapy and it, it took up, you know, most of their time and, and trying to, to earn a wage at the same time was really difficult. But yet she's a strong advocate and, um, you know, you wouldn't dare fail her, basically. If she's saying you can do something, my God, you better try your best to do it then because, you know, she believes in you. So mm -hmm. um, without that, um, that fire behind me, I, I, I'm not sure where I'd be. Yeah, don't we all need someone to believe in us, hey? Yes. Um, I, I'd love to meet my mum. She sounds, uh, I love this description of her being terrifyingly loving. <laughs> She's a firecracker. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I, I suspect you've learned some of your advocacy from her. I think so. I think um, what what she's really passed down is that that feeling of, of right versus wrong and mm -hmm. that I guess that it's a real privilege to be of service to others. Um, mm. It's a privileged position to have if you're elevating the voice of other people um, or, or, or other group. Then it's a it's a very important role, and and um, there's an expectation then on you to to do the best that you can. And so I guess I, I try to do that every day. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've certainly elevated the voice of people um, and yourself and your family so beautifully today, Debbie. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us today, Debbie? Um, I think I'd just like to, to share with people that, um, you know, we're all capable of things um, beyond our wildest expectations. Um, you know, what you think life is is going to be about doesn't necessarily mean that's all there is. Um, and what excites me is innovation and thinking outside the box and thinking strategically and thinking long-term. That's what, what really excites me and, and kind of gets my, gets my fires burning. So I'm, I'm excited to be in this sector um, and I'm excited to, to use my voice for, for good. And um, I'm excited to see what's next. Yeah, yeah. So we talked about your early trajectory, but uh, you're, you're still moving. <laughs> still moving. That's it. That's it. Yeah. I'm, I'm just having the best time, um, you know, I guess being in service of others and, and, and using my voice where I can. So um, watch this space. Yeah. Well, thank you, Debbie. I've really enjoyed listening to your story and, and if there's some things I really want to think deeply about. So um, thank you. It's been a real privilege uh, spending some time with you. Thank you, Carrie. I'm sincerely grateful. How interesting was it listening to Debbie talk about her experience of growing up in the 1980s?
This was a time in Australia when the human rights movement was gaining momentum. Larger institutions were being closed and people with disabilities were being recognised as having the right to opportunities available to others. Debbie talked about the expectations others had of her. As an infant, the prevailing thoughts of the time focused on what were seen as her deficits, anticipation that she would be unable to walk, talk and learn and be part of family and community life. But her family had other ideas. So did a teacher who gave her the opportunity for an education alongside her siblings and the other children in the neighbourhood. These high expectations, in part, enabled Debbie to thrive. Debbie described her mother as terrifyingly loving when she talked about her role in supporting Debbie and advocating for her. I loved that description. It made me think about other parents who have spoken on the Family Voices podcast about the balance required to be an effective advocate the balance of being confident and strong with the need to be respectful and positive towards others. Advocacy can be a difficult dance at times. I found that Debbie and I share a passion and commitment to promoting the rights of people with a disability. I was really moved by her story and I'm so pleased she wanted to share it with us. The Family Voices podcast will continue to bring new perspectives from parents but we'll also hear from people with disability, siblings, and grandparents. Let us know if you'd like to be part of a podcast or if you have some new ideas for us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Family Voices. Make sure you subscribe on your podcast app and feel free to leave a review to help us gain more of an understanding of what types of conversations are helpful to you. More information about the podcast can be found on ekiavik.org.au. Until next time, thank you for listening.